Hi, and welcome to the 53rd episode of Bachi Death Trip, a soon-to-be award-winning podcast that looks at albums released around the early 2000s. On this week's episode, we will be discussing the breakout album Relationship of Command by a band from El Paso, Texas, by the name of At The Drive-In. It has become painfully obvious that over the last 52 episodes that my co-host has amassed quite the fan base, with even people who I have known since I was a teenager declaring themselves Team Benji. So, in order to get more people over to Team Reese besides myself and Dustin, I am now rebranding myself as the intellectual of the podcast. I am now revealing my ultimate form as a smart, considered and insightful podcast host. I am no longer the dog rat fuckhead that launches into ill-timed rants and weak as piss analogies. Nope, nope, nope. I am now a mild-mannered music critic who deserves, nay, demands your admiration. So with that in mind, let's formally begin. At the drive-in, on this album in particular, are fucking cool. They rock hard. They are what the Red Hot Chili Peppers could have been if the Red Hot Chili Peppers weren't obsessed with putting socks over their penises while performing songs about their penises. Fuck no, no! Damn it, Reese! You're better than that, man. Come on, remember, you're smart now. Oh, stay on track, you can do this. No more shit takes, no more shit takes. Okay, come on. At the drive-in formed in 1994 and had released two albums before finally releasing Relationship of Command to both critical and commercial success. To me, it perfectly follows the timeline of a house party. It starts off exciting and fun, it's a bit chaotic, and then some fucking dude rocks up and changes the vibe, and you're like, yo, I heard this guy was cool, but he kinda sucks right now. So you retreat into a bedroom with some friends and and you create a new vibe, and it's a bit quieter, sure, but maybe you make some prank calls or whatever. And then that dude who was harshing everyone's vibe, like, fucks off and leaves the party. And then the remaining party goers, like, they come out back into the living room and have a good time and dance to Cosmonaut. And then you realise that the dude who kind of sucked was actually Iggy Pop. And he was brought in just because he and Ross Robinson were, like, planning on working together. And Ross gave Iggy some of, like, the at the driving records. And Iggy was like, yo, man, these guys sound fucking cool. And then, like, Ross went and told Omar that Iggy said that. And Omar was like, oh, man, that's awesome. Let's get Iggy in to come and do a song on our record. And Iggy was like, all right, guys, I'll do it. But I'm just going to add next to nothing to your track. I'm just going to make stupid noises. And I'm going to hope my name and reputation does most of the heavy lifting. And then everyone was like, fuck yeah, Iggy. Can't wait to hear it. It's going to be so cool. And then this guy, Keith Harris, was like, hey, everyone. In 20 years, when I'm writing for Rolling Stone, I'm going to write an article and I'm going to title it 20 Great Iggy Pop Collaborations. And everyone was like, fuck yeah, sick. And Keith's like, no, 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 it gets better. I'm actually going to record the Iggy Pop and At The Drive-In collaboration on that list. And everyone's like, yeah, we love you, Keith. And then Ross Robinson and At The Drive-In were in the closet making babies. And I saw one of the babies and then the baby looked at me. So Benji. We've talked about Glassjaw before, and now we're talking about At The Drive-In. Do you think the reason Glassjaw didn't reach the heights of At The Drive-In was because they didn't have a shirtless dude making silly noises over one of their songs? 
And it also kind of didn't help that they were on Roadrunner Records at the time, and Roadrunner, by all accounts, just went, well, I don't know what to do with these guys. Like, you know, we wanted bands to sound more like Killswitch Engage, but we didn't want them to sound this completely different. Ra rah, 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 rah. So... It's a bit unfair to Iggy Pop. I mean, what what did he do for that song? What song was it, Reese? And what did he add to it? Well, yeah, he added fuck all. It's that Rolodex propaganda song. And he comes on and you can tell it's like, oh, I'm the zany one. I'm going to do some silly things. And then he just basically does that movement where you drag your index finger up and down your lips. And go, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I've got it here. It's like, oh, you're zany, man. We don't know what you're going to do. It's like, could you at least do something like semi-decent? It's like, <laughs> it's like that Simpsons episode where Bart tries to go to the Mad Magazine office. And like, that's what Iggy Pop thinks his life is. But actually, it's just like a dude who just refuses to put a shirt on. That is half-hearted as fuck, Iggy Pop. And he adds nothing to the song. He doesn't need to be on there. That song rules without him. And I, I skip it. I have to skip it because of him. They're not all going to be Maynard James Keenan guesting on a song, are they? Would you say that Maynard's one of the best guest vocalists out there? Because he did vocals for Rage Against the Machine's debut. And he also did vocals on Passenger on... Well, Deftones' White Pony, which we universally and unanimously between us think is one of the best albums across the timeline that we're covering. So, I'd say with Maynard, he doesn't sort of fuck around. He's pretty considered as to who he will and won't work with and what he brings to a song. Like when he appeared on Passenger on Deftones, I'm like, I can't believe they're friends. What the fuck? And that is a great song. Yeah, I just I think he pop. You can kind of tell he's just not into it or he didn't really pay attention when they were giving him the brief it's like man you just come in you just say this one line he's like i'm gonna be silly it's like oh you don't you don't really have to be like the song doesn't really call for it and what goes on after that little iggy pop part is fucking incredible the rest of the song is so good it, he just detracts from it. It, it it is unnecessary at least get henry rollins in to just do some spoken word at the start or, or something if you want some clout that way but apart from that song, your overall thoughts on the album before we get stuck into things around the album? Come on, you you got I would go as far to say it's like one of your favorite albums. Would I buy? Would I be right in thinking that? Oh, it's absolutely one of the greatest albums I've ever heard of all time, and I fucking love it, and I will love it to the day that I die. Okay, well that's the podcast over with. That's the podcast over with. Like done and dusted, mate. A ten minute podcast. That's good. Did you get into at the drive-in when Relationship of Command came out or did you get into it a little while after it came out? I remember exactly when I got it because I got it in the big pile of CDs that I would get from CD stores, take them home, burn them and then return them individually to stores. And at the drive-in was one I could not return because I was like, oh my God, it hadn't yet blown up because I remember all of a sudden one arm scissor was everywhere. And I didn't know that would be the single. So I was like, that's not the best song on the album. Why is that? Why is that the single? I remember thinking that. So either, you know, that's just when I heard it, but I definitely was listening to it in, in a little bit of a bubble before they really sort of reached the masses, I think. And that's because I'm a cool fucking trendsetter. Oh, yeah, you're 100%. I mean, like, I'm not saying this 
in a negative light, but the fact that you're wearing an old school Charlotte Hornet shirt. You know it, man. Trendsetter, man. I am not allowed to wear my Miami Heat Adidas jacket because it's kind of that yellowy faded kind of color because it's, it's, I've had it for a while. But and so it looks like someone's just taken like a urine, a urine. I wanted to say someone's taken a piss, but I said I just thought it'd be classy. Well, it is a classy podcast now after my rebranding. I just assumed you were an at the driving fan, but I've never really heard you talk about them. But when we started talking about, hey, maybe we should do this at, uh, episode on at the driving, you were just like, all right, here's the timeline. Like you yeah. seem to know where they fucking fit in. And how, like, where they fit into the new metal scene and their feelings on it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, like, just to clear up anything in case people are wondering, you know, as Reese talking about conjecture and stuff like that. Um, it was my suggestion that we did at the drive-in. And I know that Reese Reese doesn't often have reservations about albums. And there's been a couple of albums at times where we've gone but does it fit into the overall scheme of what we're talking about? And so at the drive-in was one of those conversations of, okay, so what are we doing with this? Because it came out around the time frame that we're looking at, but, but it's not necessarily a new metal album. But I think the most important takeaway is that I feel that this album swung a lot of heads in the 2000s when it was a case that new metal was starting to feel or when it was a case where new metal was starting to become a little bit fatigued and overdone like people were getting weary of like oh just how many fucking new metal bands are out there and how many times do we have to see fred durst on mtv and and, and what's going on and so it was a time when it felt like lethargy had kicked in with new metal. I mean, if we're officially counting 1995 as perhaps the earliest incarnation of the rise of new metal, that's like five years. And like two of those were predominantly fucking Fred Durst with not so much $3 bill, yore, but definitely around the time of Significant Other leading into Chocolate Starfish. He was just fucking everywhere. I love Slipknot, but Slipknot were everywhere. I love wallet chains as much as the next person. I love baggy jeans, but when you start opening kind of high street fashion retail magazines, you know, not fancy ones, but like what would be the equivalent of... So is there still Kmart in Australia? Yeah, I'm always saying that and literally, I'm always saying it, it's quite boring. We're in the rise of Kmart. Yeah. I lived through the rise of Target. Now Target kind of sucks in Australia. And Kmart's booming because they just have cheap shit everywhere. And it's just easy to get. Like, And they have 24-hour stores and stuff here. Yeah. So it's almost like the Primark equivalent in the United Kingdom. It's just cheap. Primark now sells Slayer and Iron Maiden shirts. Yeah, Kmart know. does as well. Yeah. yeah Nine Inch Nail shirts and shit. But I think... You know, around this time when this album came out, you had a total saturation of new metal. Absolutely. We know that music and fashion are cyclical and what goes around comes around and, it, and everything has its sort of 15 minutes. But with new metal, there's not really too much to hold on to. The no. bands with, you know, in particular Limp Bizkit, and we talked about this on the Chocolate Starfish episode, they're not really saying much. So it's more of a feeling, and that feeling is usually associated with so sort of young, 
angsty teens. And once you move past that, it's like, well, what can I return to on this album? I can't return to that feeling per se, uh, that just pointless aggression. So I, I want my aggression sort of pointed at something, you know? I want to feel like my aggression yeah. is productive because I feel like I have less hours in the day. So I want to make sure this feeling of rage is, is sort of funneled into something. Whereas it's just like Fred Durst going, hey, here are all the things I don't give a fuck about and here's how many times I've seen Fight Club. So you can't really return to the scene of the crime in that regard. So people are like tapped out. They've got what they needed. And they're like, what's next? You grow out of that kind of teenage angst. You hopefully grow out of that teenage angst. I mean, I remember when I first got pointed in the direction of At The Drive-In, it was a friend of mine, Joe, from Struggles With Syntax. And uh, he, cause, like, he was into Incubus, uh, Deftones, you know, and I was with people that were more like, they like Iron Monkey, Hard To Swallow, uh, a litany of like British crust punk bands, you know, the, the typical kind of heavy American, you know, aggression over noise nothing like like black metal or or death metal just kind of like yeah angry angry fucking music and so joe told me about at the drive-in and then i ended up watching kerrang tv when they used to show music videos they they still do but they used to also uh and that was the video for one arm scissor and it just i was like this is so fucking refreshing this is really good. You know, opened up the channel of you don't need to scream or do a death metal growl or a cookie monster growl or whatever you want to call it in order to evoke a sense of rage, which is ridiculous because I was a Rage Against the Machine fan growing up as well. But I think with everything going on with new metal that for at the driving to come out at that time, I honestly believe, and this is the reason why we talk about it today, that that was a sea change moment in the musical community that we were both collectively a part of, despite being oceans apart. Because in 2000, when Relationship of Command came out, you also had what else came out that year? Uh, Glassjaw, is that around 2000? That's correct. Everything you ever wanted to know about Silence, which is still today, despite it having its misogynistic elements that Daryl continued to apologize for, was still a watershed moment in the post-hardcore scene. And you had Will Haven in 1999 as well, so you could maybe lump that into people starting to get into post-hardcore and move away from the formulaic style that new metal was becoming. You also had in 2000, Deftones White Pony, which as far as I'm concerned, is one of the biggest moves away from the new metal formula. It felt like at that point, Chino Marino and everyone just went, you know what, everyone's kind of doing what we've done two albums to the past two albums, so why don't we try something different, you know, why don't instead of having like a turntable like everyone's got, we actually have someone that's got a full-blown sampler kit, and you got that fantastic, well, one of the best albums ever made, White Pony, so... I honestly think that 2000 was when people started to turn away from the deluge of new metal and perhaps going into you trying to be intellectual in the intro, which you did as well, man. I, it was a very intellectual take. I doth my cap to thee. Yeah, thank you, sir. Thank you, good sir. And I doth thy cap to you as well. 
I think that the 2000s for me was the point where new metal was very close to jumping the shark and people started to want to get into refined things, which is great because that's how musical exploration should be. From at the drive-in, I started to, you know, find out things like Don Caballero, yes. Polvo. Yes. All, all the bands that Martin Phillips from God Bells to Math. First Hello. Got. Yeah, yeah, man. Uh, what else have we got there? Um, Arab Arab on Radar? Arabs on Radar? I don't know that band. Ah, no, they're pretty good. Check them out. But is that a fair assumption to make? Because I don't want it to come across as me going, new metal, that's just fucking dumb music. Because I enjoyed new metal, and I still enjoyed parts of new metal that was coming out. But, you know, for me, man, year 2000, I was like 17. And kind of you know what, like, I'm out in the world now, I'm at college, where people are a little bit more kind of inclusive. So do you think that perhaps that year, 2000, was the year that new metal was about to jump the shark? When you really sum it up, it's kind of like, I can't believe I'm going to compare the two, but it's like, hey, the Beatles were only really an active band for four years, and Limp Bizkit were really popular for two years, and the amount of things that Fred Durst did in those two years... The amount of videos he directed, the amount of bands he did help to a degree, and the amount of horrendous voice messages he left on people's parents' answering machines. <laughs> yeah. He really took advantage of that time, man. But if you look at Ross Robinson, who produced this at the Drive-In album, it's kind of unfair. I, I think the whole movement was going away because his run-up to this album was Slipknot, Amen Self-Titled, Glassjaw, Everything You Wanted to Know About Silence, at the Drive-In, relationship of command and then he went back to amen we have come for your parents then he did straight up the greatest love making compilation you've ever heard but before that he did the limp biscuits the corns the human waste projects and the soul fly so he like for a few years he was sort of moving away from it because new metal it, it, it's essentially fast food it doesn't fill you up it feels good in the moment and then you feel like I'm actually wanting a little bit more. And, and at the drive-in definitely provided that for people probably like you, but definitely like myself, where it's like you've got a guy who's like, we didn't come up with those bands. We're, we're more into Fugazi. We're more into Rites of Spring. We're more into The Fall. We're big subhumans fans, you know, that sort of stuff. So they love Social Distortion and Youth Brigade. There's this amazing documentary that Jim talked about where it's called uh, Another State of Mind where they basically, like, Social Distortion, Youth Brigade and Minor Threat sort of all meet up. They hang out at the Discord house and it's about them touring and shit. By Jim, you mean Jim Ward, the guitarist from At The Drive-In, now with Sparta and a bunch of other acts? Yeah, yeah, correct, yeah. So, yeah. so they come up with all the, these bands and they're like, this is who we're into. Have you ever heard Subhumans? Uh, I'm not going to lie, on a podcast, not so much. I might have heard them in passing, but nothing where I've sat down and basically focused on them well i've got like a quick grab for listeners who may not have heard them this is released in 1983 tell me if you can hear that the driving influence you can definitely hear it yeah yeah of course you have a band like at the driving who came up listening to this and Rites of Spring. Smile, 
Were they Mission of Burma fans by chance? Oh, I, I didn't hear that, but potentially. I have a very, very strong memory of Cedric on stage saying, if you don't listen to The Fall, you listen to too much hip-hop and heavy metal. And I would say that at so many shows when I would play. I would just... I didn't even know what it meant. I didn't really listen to The Fall. I'm not a massive Marquis Smith fan. But you've got a band who comes up listening to these kind of bands. Jim and Cedric started the band when they were like, what, 14 or 15. They would jam in a park. Cedric wrote a lot of the riffs. Jim would just sort of add the riffs on top and they kind of mashed them together. They did a lot of like econo touring and stuff. And they built up that real like um, grassroots fan base. And then they just explode with this one album. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, you're playing after Mudvayne at Big Day Out. And you're like, what? It's like, yeah, you're playing after Mudvayne. You're kind of like them. You know, you kind of got that Ross Robinson vibe. It's like, we're fucking totally different. It's like, all the new metal kids love you. And at the time you've got that sort of emo movement coming in as well. So it's like, we're emo in that sort of Rites of Spring or Discord Yeah, that first wave of emo. That kind of Fugazi level of emo. So they're getting labelled incorrectly. They're getting stuck on these fucked out bills. And that's why you have that, like... Big Day Out fucking breakdown in Sydney where they walked off stage. Which we will get to after the advert break, definitely. I just want to pull it back a little bit more about the uh, oversaturation of new metal. And I have to ask this because he basically gets like tagged as one of the worst people ever. Well, his character does anyway. He gets tagged <laughs> character as, assassins. Like, as like an inciter. But... Do you think that it was Fred Durst's omnipresence that was the real reason people were getting sick of new metal? Or do you think at that stage it was a genre that was so overindulging that people needed acts like At the Drive-In and Glassjaw? And then a year later you had Will Haven's Carpe Diem and speaking of emo, a year later you had Jimmy Eat World's Bleed American, mm. which was another fantastic album that just kind of got lumped into like, well, it's not quite new metal, but or the magazines are focusing on new metal, so yes. we have to kind of include them. And then, oh, yeah, Jimmy World, uh, uh, an uh, emo like My Chemical Romance. I mean, that's a podcast in itself, just talking about the differences between post-hardcore, emo, emo-core, and being called a goth because I wore a murder doll shirt. So, yeah, do you think it's unfair, or do you think Fred Durst had a little bit to do with that, or do you think it was just the media getting overly saturated with this counterculture because it was kind of weird but yet accessible now? I think the character of Fred Durst is a fundamentally two-dimensional character. And you've been a journalist before. Yeah. Once you've heard his opinion and you realise that hasn't changed over the last few years, there's not much more to this guy than, you know, below the surface. He wasn't able to reinvent himself. I think he's still kind of doing pretty much the same stuff, although the the dad vibes movement is a little bit different. But... You know, yeah. the movies that he makes are still kind of shit. It's like, well, we can't keep going to this guy because he's not really giving us anything extra. We know what he's about. We know what he's going to say. So he's unable to sort of move with the times. So it's like, well, this seems tapped out. The well runneth dry. What's this? You've got a guy over here telling everyone to listen to Charles Mingus and The Fall b- before they play and they're dedicating... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're dedicating songs to like political movements and they're engaged and they are energetic and they are frenetic. Let's head over there. Or you've got Killswitch Engage going that ultra sort of spiritual, redeeming, like you can do it, feel your heartbeat in your chest sort of shit. Let's go over there and talk to them because this guy, 
we've heard what he said and it it's not great. It wasn't great then and he's not adding any more layers, you know. Uh, Eminem would probably be a good example of someone who just keeps sort of not totally reinventing himself but doing different things and showing different facets of his personality, whereas Fred, the character, doesn't have that many different sides of his personality. So what do you do as a journalist, you know? It got to a point where perhaps journalists looked at Fred Durst and felt, we can use him, he's a renter quote. Because there's definitely a period where Fred Durst decided to retire the character for a little bit. And now he's come back with a revamped version of that character for Dad Vibes, which I like it. I like Dad Vibes. I mean, like I went through a big Limp Biscuit binge over this past weekend to demonstrate to one of my friends about Woodstock 99. Like, yeah. I think that you are, ab- well, I don't even think, I know you're absolutely correct about how at the drive-in were mislabeled. And we're going to talk about that in a little while after this advert break, which I have had nothing to do with on this occasion. So hopefully that money that I got from our last uh, sponsors, you've not spent it on this sponsor, have you? I think you need to think about what the term spend means. Right, hold on. So do you don't spend money on me. stocks don't, or do you invest? Don't don't me on that answer, man. It was a simple yes or no. If the question is, has thirty five thousand dollars left our bank account? Yes. And if the if the next question is, did you get a fucking great sponsor? Yes. Are the loan sharks after me? Yes. Is it worth it for this podcast? Yes, of course. Slight little hesitation there, Reese, but uh, yeah, check out our sponsors. Crack Hitler, Holiday, Feeling Good, Stink Fist. What do all these songs have in common? If you said they're all in C major, well, you might be right. Uh, I don't know, I'm tone deaf, so I can't confirm it. But if you said they all have megaphones in them, then you're absolutely correct. And we at Baccio Death Trip HQ are proud to be sponsored by Megaphones. Can't sing very well? Use a megaphone. Want to be seen as being anti-authority? Megaphone. Want to be the fucking dude from Arcade Fire? Get rich parents and then get a megaphone. Megaphones rule and they're all punk and shit and Thomas Edison was the original angry frontman who wants to get some shit off his chest in a semi-audible way. Fucking Christ, there's even a video of Corey Taylor singing Eyeless with some kids and in one hand Corey has a beer bottle and in the other hand, what's that? Oh, it's a goddamn megaphone. WWE Hall of Famer Jimmy Hart had a megaphone and he was named Pro Wrestling Illustrator's Manager of the Year in 1987. So if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for you. Benji, when I say mega, you say phones are so cool. Mega. Phones are so cool! Mega. Benji, when I say mega, you say phones are so cool. Mega. Phones are so cool. Phones are so cool. And now we have it. Good sponsor. And that's why you let me know if there's audience participation involved. I fucking hate audience participation. Uh, speaking of audiences, though, uh, the Big Day Out incident is something that I think a lot of people that are casual fans that are at the drive-in might not be aware of. Please tell me you've got a clip of this. I've got, I've got three. Three clips? Three dollar clips, y'all. Should we contextualize it before we go into the clips, or are they pretty self-explanatory? Okay, so I've got the Sydney Big Day Out intro. I've got the Sydney Big Day Out end, and I've got Cedric talking about that incident l- many years later. 
All right, let's get the intro and then let's get the ending. Then let's talk about it and see what Mr. Cedric has to say. Just be nice to each other and uh, let's dance rather than beat the shit out of each other. And uh, we do come from Texas and we are called out to drive it. See so here at the start, they're playing a the festival. Let's not beat the shit out of each other. Then people yeah. proceed to get a little bit rough. And here's how the set ends. That's how the set ends, I think, after 16 minutes. Uh, 15 minutes, 47 seconds, if I remember correctly. I really like the Bill Hicks kind of vibe that he went for at the end as well. I He, he strikes me as someone that would watch Bill Hicks, you know, and, and reference them. What the fuck happened, people might be wondering. Well, if you listen to uh, what they have to say, and we'll, we'll get it from the horse's mouth, so to speak, they were playing at the same tent that Mudvayne were playing. Is that correct? Either just after Mudvayne, but in a div- in a close enough area. So I think from that, they were playing in the shed and Mudvayne had finished and then they went over. So all the Mudvayne fans migrated over to where people were there to watch at the drive-in. So Cedric and Omar did an interview with The Guardian, which I believe was around the time that their latest album came out. And uh, Cedric himself mentioned that I saw a lot of women getting fist fought by dudes, and that's what I was talking about back then. It was cool to be stupid and misogynist, which is interesting because we've spoken about the misogyny in the new metal scene uh, a couple of times now. So for someone within the music scene to identify it, kind of vindicates what we were talking about so yeah omar basically said that that was the trend at the time this kind of overt aggressive toxic masculinity i mean he had valid points but the platform he chose to address these was at the wrong time wrong place you know i mean people just wanted to see them play not be addressed as sheep and then have them walk off after 16 minutes so how did you feel about it Back in the day, younger, wanting to watch bands play compared to how you feel now with that kind of hindsight, what the new metal scene was like. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly what I would have thought. That I wasn't allowed to go to that big day out. Uh, and that big day out, they had a point because that is the Limp Bizkit uh, headlining. Holy tour. shit. Yes, yeah, so yeah. they did have a point, And I think it may have been at that concert was when that, that girl sadly lost her life. So, look, they had a point. They were onto something. They felt the energy. Uh, did they handle it overly well? Uh, yes, I know. Like, maybe he didn't get his point, his point across very well. Like, you watch too much TV. You didn't learn that from your best friend. It's like, oh, that's probably not the right angle to go. It's like, we're stopping because people are getting hurt. This sucks. Yeah. See you later, fuck faces. Like, that, maybe that's how you do it. Rather than just 
bleating at people. But I understand when you have a microphone and you are on this sort of like agitated, enhanced, adrenaline-fueled state, like things yeah. just come out, you know, and, and it's a lot of thoughts all happening at once. All right, well, let's let's listen to how Cedric uh, remembers the situation. Now, how long ago was this interview with him? Have I ever come across as a credible journalist? I don't know my sources. I don't know. Like, you, you use Wikipedia. Wikipedia has citations. I actually don't use Wikipedia for anything but share related, really. Uh, so I am I am better than most journalists, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. Here's what Cedric had to say. I think to Rolling Stone Australia, I could be wrong. Yeah, many, many, many moons later. Definitely a good decade later, at least. And I've always wondered what happened when you actually walked off stage. What what was the mood in the dressing room? What, what some of us snapped at each other, you know. We didn't really understand what, what the problem was. And with all due respect to a band like like Mudvayne, because they tour and they they work hard just like any other band does, but you have to be super hyper aware of what that music attracts. So playing side by side by them and that audience coming over to what we're playing, it just became like bro central. And I started seeing people get hurt really bad, you know. And now I have fun and jump in the audience myself. And at that time, I was very idealistic about trying to control that, which is really naive of me because that's like a huge audience to try to control. So I was getting really upset with the amount of bros that came into our part, which is just really naive and idealistic of me to think at the time. And I just was just really upset by it. I didn't know how to um, deal with that size crowd, you know, and I think some of the Big Day Out people were upset with us because we asked for the lights to be turned off because we like to play just like it's bare bones because that's how we grew up. And I think we got in an argument with them, and they thought that all the violence that erupted was because we didn't want lights. And then, you know, I was yelling at the audience, and then all these people had come to see us, of other bands that were watching on stage, like PJ Harvey people, Queen Stone Age people, it was the first time we met Queen of Stone Age, and everyone just watching us, and then we kind of imploded. I think it was a good performance, and I think it was really um, beautiful shambles. Yes, so I always got the impression that he had a very tenacious kind of attitude about him. I mean, the energy that he exerted on stage for a start was kinetic, you know. It was it just seemed very kind of taut and tense. Was this the situation then? Did I hear correctly that they fell out afterwards? Was this... The start of what led at the drive-in to break off into the the two future bands or was there more to it not from what i gather what i gather was it was already there they weren't really happy with the relationship of command they thought it sounded a bit too polished and plastic you know that great songs great performances but they didn't like the overall sound they broke up six months after relationship of command came out six months after yeah but the thing to remember is that they were a touring band for years before that but but also Jim was 23 when they recorded Relationship of Command or when it came out. I'm not sure. But they were young dudes, yeah? A lot of attention thrown at them. And that attention, according to Jim, some people wanted to hide from it. Some people wanted more. Some people let that attention change them. And that's sort of what happened. So it it just caused the divide. Now, this might have been just another sort of straw laid upon the camel's back. But I can't imagine it helped because, as Cedric says, when they went backstage, some people were like, what, what, what are we doing? Like, and other members were like, we should go back out. And other members were like, no, 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 we can't go back out. We've got to stay strong. 
So it's like, yeah, that that's that's tricky. And then, yeah, obviously they went on to do Sparta and the Mars Volta. Now, speaking to elite runner Mark, who was an avid at the driving fan and a massive, massive Sparta fan who was in the Sparta like fan club or the street team, whatever it was called, he helped organise their supports when they toured Australia. And it happened to be one of my good friends who I was at the basketball with all day yesterday. So I asked him, I was like, what was that support like? Like, what, what was the vibe like? And here's what he said. This is Tom from the Nation Blue. Hey, man. Yeah, I do remember that show. They were all really nice, but I got the feeling Jim, the guitarist, was angry. I don't know if that's fair. Drummer was super nice. Bass player was super nice. They, they, they were good. They were fine. Like, out of all the bands we played with through that era, they were pretty, pretty fair enough. No salacious bullshit or anything else. Like, they were just kind of fine. Like, they were super normal. Jim just had a, just an edge. Like, he was just... He kind of, like, we said g'day, and I think that they, they were, like, so fatigued from punishment that they were probably wary of support bands. You know, they were probably just, like, they didn't want to talk about at the drive-in. They didn't give a fuck about that shit. And they just wanted to play their new stuff. And I totally respect that, you know. Like, I, I can't remember people calling out at the drive-in songs, but I'm sure that probably happened to them a lot. He dropped something in there. He's like, they were better than some of the... Sp- the bands we supported back then because the nation blues seemed to be one of the bands that like bands like Sparta or Thursday or whatever would get a support and they supported the Foo Fighters. And there's a great clip of Matt who like dislocates his knee or breaks his leg on stage with the Foo Fighters. And, and Chris is side stage going, what's wrong? And then Tom's like, we're not very fit. That's <laughs> pretty good. As like the first aid guys, like you know, put him in a wheelchair. So I asked him who were the bands that kind of sucked? Um, the Atari's parked me in. I can tell you that much, and refuse to move their car, so them and the vandals can suck one. Oh, fuck the Ataris, man. All my bros fucking hate the Ataris. Why the vandals? He just, I don't know, he said the Ataris and the vandals can suck a big one. <laughs> I don't know why. It's funny, because I, I always, the Ataris seem like everyone holds this similar opinion, like, yeah, the Ataris are good, but fuck Chris Rowe, the lead singer and guitarist of the Ataris. Fuck that guy. We went to Slam Dunk Festival, me and a couple of people, uh, a couple of years ago, and they had a fireball stage, and it was the Ataris were playing on it. So like, oh, we'll, we'll go and watch it. And a longtime listener of the show, uh, Martin from Morley. Can you say that in the Yorkshire accent for me, Reese? Morley. There you go. You're getting the hang of it. We were stood next to each other and basically both turned around and said, man, this is really good, but still fuck Chris Rowe. He's a cunt. Bixler Zavala said at the drive-in stifled his creativity and Rodriguez Lopez admitted he couldn't even listen to their Relationship of Command album, like you mentioned. Do you think that this was purely artistic temperament from the pair of them, that Cedric and Omar wanted to be Pink Floyd and the rest of the band were happy continuing the sound of relationship of command that earned them that mainstream attention. Well, it's no secret. The other three are holding it down. Watch any live clip. There's an amazing Lady With Jewels clip where they're playing and it scares the shit out of Robbie Williams who's playing after them. I'll post it on the Instagram. It's really, really good. But yeah. like Omar goes out of tune within a second and it's just sort of Jim holding it down, doing basically everything. 
I don't know about their intentions, but you can look. What was Sparta? A r- actually, a really great album. That Wiretap Scars, I can still listen to that and I really enjoy it. I don't mind it. I don't mind it, man. I used to rock a Sparta shirt. And the Mars Volta, uh, I, I quite like him, but overly pretentious. Um, but, like, kind of went in very, very different directions. Yeah? So I think they found their groove. I'm completely different, you see. I like the Mars Volta because I like the intention that's there. It's like, we're just going to make a prog rock album. Tool made a prog metal album, so Mars Volta wanted to do a prog rock album. Uh, and I, I I, really liked it. I did. But with Sparta... I like D-Less in the Comatorium. Oh, yeah, yeah. D-Less in the Comatorium was, was brilliant, you know? Uh, and I still pick up on little bits and pieces after that as well. It's just... There was such a huge, huge, huge focus. Like, it felt like the money was more on Cedric and Omar than it was Jim and the other members. Yeah, because at the artist, well, we don't even use their names. We don't know their names. <laughs> no, no, no. We call them. Well, for me, I always thought Sparta was a band that contrarians who wanted to seem elitist in their listening habits said that they enjoyed. Because I didn't like Sparta at all. I didn't like the production value and or anything like that. Maybe now I'm older and a bit wiser, and I listen to a, a few different things. It might be a completely different situation for me now. But at the time when I was talking about, you know, oh yeah, I listen to Glastro. Like, oh Glastro, yeah, you should check out Sparta. Who or who's Sparta? Uh, it's uh, the guys from At the Drive-In without the other two. Yeah, but the other two were quite integral parts of the band. But perhaps that is because the media focused on Omar and Cedric rather than what you're saying is the complete backbone of that band. And you've got to have that backbone if you've got two people that are completely creative because you have to have that grounded aspect, don't you? Yeah, I think so. But I I would encourage you to go back and listen to not only Cold, uh, one of the greatest bands of you know modern music. I've <laughs> tried listening to them again, bro. They're so good. And uh, listen to Sparta Wiretap Scars, and and I think it's worth revisiting. There's probably better songs than than you think. Man, you're a fucking Foo Fighters fan. The Sparta are similar-ish to Foo Fighters. Some of it is bland rock, you know. I w- I would listen to Sparta over Foo Fighters. I would say. What are you saying about Foo Fighters being bland? There was another band out around that time as well, and I'm just going to think aloud uh, that I was... Oh, Cave-In. Were Cave-In yes. ever popular in Australia? Yeah. Cave-In were popular, as were Cursive, and Cursive actually did a bit of a tour with uh, at the drive-in. So I kind of looked up who were at the drive-in touring with when they really sort of blew up, and uh, they loved Murder City Devils. Like, they were always touring with them. But Cursive, Rage Against the Machine, and Jimmy Eat World were big ones. But in 2018, they toured with System of a Down. So you can kind of understand that. Like, it's similar-ish, but politically inclined. So I understand that. It's got an eccentricity system of a down uh, and also at the drive-in because they're not screaming all the time. But we're talking about the creative work of the guitars. I couldn't get Dr. Drums on today. Uh. I was able to get his cousin, Dr. Guitar. Maybe his second cousin. I can't remember exactly, but... Yeah, Dr. Guitars, I don't know his credentials. I think he just plays guitars, but I'm hoping he's left us a little message. I'm hoping he'll break down why the guitars work so well in One Arm Scissor. Just random song I plucked out of my head. Oh, sure. They call me Dr. Guitars. Good morning, how are you? 
guitars. I'm interested in guitars. I'm not a real doctor, but I am a real guitarist. Guitarist. I live like guitarist. I like to play the drums and guitars. Hey everyone, it is me, Dr. Guitars, the second cousin of Dr. Drums, and I'm here to talk to you about One Armed Scissor by At The Drive-In from Relationship of Command. The guitar work in particular, because that is what I did my doctorate on. So the guitar work in pretty much all of At The Drive-In songs is, you know, frenetic and chaotic and energetic, and it works really, really well to bring that live sound on the record. But when you isolate it, One Armed Scissor in particular, it sounds like it's a part of a different song. Like, just have a listen to this little part of One Arm Scissor right here. And if you know that song really, really well, then you will know the exact part that that song is from. But when you isolate that track, you're like, wait, oh, is that what he's playing? Oh, is that what's going on? Because it just works so well cohesively together. So that guitar is panned slightly to the left. So it comes through the left speaker a lot more than the right speaker. But the very next part, this part. So that guitar there is panned slightly to the right. So that change is dynamic in itself. But when you've got that change in direction, it kind of makes the listener feel a bit like, oh, geez, Everything's going on and it's coming at me from all directions. It's like that scene in Jurassic Park. Alright, stop. Collaborate and listen to the delay on the guitar right here. That delay really adds to the sense of chaos that's going on in this song because you've got guitars from the left, you've got guitars from the right, they're, they're coming in and out of tune, they come in and out of unison. Not to mention Cedric's vocal effects at the start of the song. Yes, this is the campaign slithered in trails in the cargo bay. And then when the left guitar joins the right guitar in the chorus and it feels like a coordinated attack and you realise they're actually working together on the same song, it helps differentiate that chaos. It's not just chaos for the sake of chaos and it's not just noise for the sake of noise. They were working to the same point. So in conclusion, that is why At The Drive-In's Relationship of Command is better than Taproot's Gift and why I am much smarter than my second cousin, Dr. Drums. Thank you. Fucking hell. You've taken digs at me on Taproot even though we've spoken about them. It, it never ends. It never ends. No, very interesting. Hopefully we'll hear back from Dr. Guitar at some point soon. But do you have a game? It'd be disappointing if we didn't have a game for the people. Does Cedric get on stage and yell at people to listen to Charles Mingus even though a lot of the crowd would have probably listened to Charles Mingus? Yes, of course I have a game.
They probably thought he was a cricketer. Listen to Kirtley Ambrose. Is it Courtney Ambrose or Kirtley? <laughs> Kirtley Ambrose. Is it Kirtley? Uh, uh, are you a cricket fan? Is it? If I said the right then name, then it doesn't matter. It, no, well, wait. Tom, Tom can verify that. Get some <laughs> email, as you know. Cricket fans, please go in. with fucking Shane Warne or someone like that, man. Paul Rifle, come at me, everybody. So, Elite Runner Mark sent me this article, and he's like, "Yo, check this out, man." I couldn't access it because I didn't want to pay for Rolling Stone. But he's like, "No, look who wrote it," and it's our good friend Neil Strauss. Now, do you know who Neil Strauss is? Benji? Yeah, he's that Ray Shoesmith motherfucking looker, isn't he? Potentially, I don't really know, but, you know, he's a pickup artist, uh, allegedly, or he was. He wrote the book The Game, which is about, like, standing out, peacocking, you know, treating people you're interested in like pieces of shit, basically. He's not Mr. In-Between. I don't know who the fuck he is now. I don't know what he's... I've never read oh, the come game. come on, man. Ez would be, like, stoked on that Australian reference. I've worked all week to try and fit that in. Anyway, Neil Strauss, piece of shit, telling you how to pick up women without... Well, alleged. You know, you know, I've never yeah. read it, but I based my whole personality on it, you know, like most people who pretend to read. So... I could imagine. Yeah. I've gone and got some quotes that I think are from the game. I'm pretty sure they are. Uh, without buying it, I just sort of searched the internet. And I've also got some dating advice from musicians. So I'm going to read it out, and you tell me, do you think it's from Neil Strauss or a musician? It gets wilder and wilder, doesn't it? So you're basically asking me, is it dating advice from a band or is it dating advice from a pickup artist? Yeah. My kind sir, would you start the music, please? <clears throat> Let's do this. There are so many different kinds of sex. And I think all of them need different soundtracks, but the one thing that always works is silence. Nothing is sexier than hearing the other person. Is that a band? Yeah, yeah! Yeah, it is. That's Tim from OK Go. Well done, there Benji. What made you say that? I don't know. It just sounded poetic, nice, charming. The fuck you on a treadmill, OK Go. God! <laughs> as long as you don't make a peep. Muster the courage to do something ridiculous. People usually appreciate things when they work for it. Neil Strauss from the game or a musician? Now that sounds like some typical fucking pickup artist bullshit, man. Yeah, yeah! Well done. That was Neil Strauss. Confidence is reflected in how they walk and how they dress and how they speak and how they carry themselves. It's just amazing. And that can turn anybody's head pretty quick. It doesn't sound too much like a Scody advice. You know, it kind of sounds very kind of affirming, you know, like a like an emo band would be that affirmative. But at the same time, there's always this kind of like push that pickup artists have, which is confidence, which people take as, oh, I've just got to be an arrogant cunt to, to someone. So I'm going to say it's a pickup artist. I, I could be very wrong, but that's my reasoning. I think it's a pickup artist. Well, you're not very wrong. You're just plain wrong. I'm sorry. So it was someone from the Avet Brothers, whoever they are, the Avet Brothers. Oh, okay, right. So you're picking out people I've never heard of before. The Yvette Brothers. Yvette Brothers, yeah. I mean, it's really hard to find. <laughs> it's really hard to find stuff. Man, all right. Playing hard to get can work sometimes. One trick is not to reveal yourself. 
let the girl ask for your name. Pick up artist because it's that bullshit big dick energy that you should have girls begging to come home with you, which is fucked up. Pick up artist. Yeah, yeah! Oh, yeah, fucking true, right, man. Your self-worth is determined by you. You don't have to depend on someone telling you who you are. That sounds like band bullshit. Sounds like Beyonce bullshit to me. Yeah! <laughs> that was Beyonce. That was Queen B herself. The musicians are more affirming than the guy that's made a career bullshitting lonely men, so... I always like to dress up in a tuxedo and tell the girl to dress real fancy. I like to pick her up and go to McDonald's in a tuxedo. You don't have to shell out a bunch of money on the first date. That's a band, isn't it? Yeah, yeah! Yeah, man. Adam Levine from Maroon 5. Uh, there you go, man. Like, he gets it. Bit of fun. He's playful. Mating is largely a <laughs> Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Pick up artist, Reese. Just hit yes now. Pick up artist, right? Mating is a mating is largely a game of chance. Yes, it's a pickup artist. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't even get through it. Mating is largely a game of chance. Like, <laughs> I thought dating was largely a game of chance. I'll give them that, but mating is a what fucking game of chance is it? Oh, I don't even want to think about the subtext in that. Oh. Next question. Man, just imagine some dude in a fedora in like 2003 reading that. It's so good. It's like, hmm, I will. No, dude, dude, I, there's no mansion in it. And I'm not going to reveal everything on air, but I had an acquaintance that fell deep into a pickup artist hole and they accidentally left a CD when they moved out. And uh, yeah, say no more. So it's creepy. It's sad as well because they brainwash lonely people into thinking like, yeah, man, you just got to exert this kind of confidence, you know, got to have that big dick energy. And it's like, just be a nice fucking guy. There's someone for everyone. Yes. That was Benji Jackson dating tips on Batshow Death Trip. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Last one. Think of places outside that are comfortable to have sex. It's a band, isn't it? That is the Wicked Wisdom singer Jada Pinkett Smith. Yeah, yeah! Well done. She's married to that goatsy fellow, is that correct? <laughs> yes, that is allegedly seriously, true. Seriously, <laughs> seriously, like, I don't mean to get rid of whatever small audience that we've got, but uh, if you're listening to this in between a misogynistic pickup artist podcast and another misogynistic, you know, podcast about picking women up, confidence, the game, girls just don't know that they want it. You need to make sure that they realize they want you. Just fucking delete us off your phone. There's no fucking time for that. The world's misogynistic anyway. We don't need this kind of idea that men need to be men again because men have always been men it's just a it's just great that women feel empowered to stand up against bullshit from men can i get an amen reese yeah, yeah oh my god that'll do thanks james our listeners are absolute dog rats like we know that but they're not that kind of dog rats they're more sort of like just just looking at like pictures of baked beans throughout the day <laughs> like, that's sort of what gets them off well, we're about to like have the 
biggest rises in living in the United Kingdom. Uh, probably it will be happening at the time that this podcast comes out. And so the meme that's been doing the rounds is like uh, some baked beans on top of a dish and a tea light underneath it. Like it's one of those diffusers. Like that's pretty fucking accurate. Uh, right. So the only thing I've got left to ask you one final question. It can be short and succinct. Yeah. <laughs> have I ever been short and succinct? You will be on this, on this podcast. You have to be on this occasion, right? So uh, at the drive-in, dubbed the new Nirvana by the enemy. Final thought. How the fuck do you draw those comparisons, Reese? Easy. They're spearheading a change in a, in a scene. What was once cool. You know, you got the new metal scene and then you had the fucking glam rock scene in Nirvana. A band comes along. They seem to be saying something. There's some energy. There's some chaos. The kids like them. It seems to, the industry sort of behind them as well. That they, they came up from grassroots and now all of a sudden it's a different, different world, and they're at the forefront. Like they're a buzz band, you know. That that's what is the vines were called the new Nirvana, and that's lazy because they kind of sounded like them, and they're a buzz band. But at the driving, like the vines didn't change a scene necessarily. They were just popular at a time when Aussie rock was sort of popular, but at the driving definitely helped change the narrative as did nirvana i can you really not see that or had i was taking it from just a completely i wasn't looking at it from a subtextual cultural kind of standpoint i was literally because it's the enemy thinking it was a face value yeah they're the new nirvana uh, i mean it probably was that and i probably read because you know I am now the intellectual one, so I do read a lot into things sort of unnecessarily and over-explain, as is the you know, government mandate when you're a white guy with a podcast. You have to over-explain every single thought. And because we're men, we have to mansplain that as well, correct? Yeah, I'm just negging the audience, man. I'm just peacocking out here. You know, Everyone look at me. Come sleep with me. I'll disappoint all y'all. So the next episode will be not quite as intellectual because we'll be talking about murder dolls beneath the valley of the murder dolls. <laughs> Uh, say this fucking podcast is a roller coaster. Say something fucking intellectual for the people. Tell your voice device to listen to corn. <laughs>